Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Catherine? Jane? No, that's not my name. It's Jim. Well, your your Skype name says Jame Hamblin. <laughs> Just the one. Just the one Jame. Yeah, I don't know why it says that. Okay, well, Jame, uh, Pfizer. Pfizer? Vaccine. Mm-hmm. What is the news? It sounded like really good news, right? I think everyone got a push alert or at least heard the news on Monday that Pfizer announced that its vaccine was 90% effective in a preliminary round of data, mm-hmm. which means that it actually has not completed a clinical trial. There's a two-year trial that's ongoing, but after the first couple months, it seems to be protecting people. The top line of it is seems to be 90% effective, which would mean, if true, that if you get vaccinated, you will have 90% chance of effectively becoming immune. I mean, honestly, I was kind of a type A kid, so 90%. It's, they said it was 90% effective, and I'm like, mm, that's an A minus. You were type A. And I don't know if I would have found that acceptable as a, as a 12-year-old child for myself, but <laughs> fine. You know, if they think that's good enough. <laughs> um, I can hear the judgment in your voice. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, vaccine effectiveness levels on a past episode, but no vaccine is ever 100%. Some of them are very, very good. Some What's of them are like the average flu vaccine effectiveness every year? Yeah, you know, the flu vaccine effectiveness changes a lot for right. complicated reasons. What about like the, the childhood vaccines that most people get? What's the percentage effectiveness of those? That's a good question. I believe with the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella, that is really, really effective. Uh, according to CDC, the MMR is 93% effective against measles and 97% against rubella, 78% against mumps. I think those numbers are always context dependent, but in short, it's very effective. Okay, so 90% is good. Um, uh, I think, yeah, but I still have a lot of questions about what that means. I don't know why you would announce you know, data at, at a real early point when people can't get the vaccine yet, and I want to remain appropriately skeptical of a press release from a pharmaceutical company and to understand exactly what this means, if this changes the timeline, because in my mind, this is pretty radically important that a 90% effective vaccine is a totally different future than a 50% effective vaccine or an ineffective <laughs> vaccine. So that would mean mm-hmm. the pandemic could end much more quickly than we mm-hmm. initially imagined. But I want to remain skeptical. And do you remember Stephen Thomas? Stephen Thomas, military logistics, doctor, challenge trial, friend of the show? Yeah. He's been on the show twice. Um, yes. He's done pandemic emergency response preparedness work for decades with the military. He's now chief of infectious disease at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse. And now he has recently been named the lead principal investigator in Pfizer's trial 
of the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm. I remember we talked to him in March and he was like, I ordered my PPE months ago. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How far we've come. Anyway, now he's integral to the development of this vaccine. And we have an inside scoop here. Okay. Inside scoop with Dr. Stephen Thomas. Coming up. Hey, Catherine. Hello, Jim. Oh, hey. Hey, Dr. Thomas. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. It sounds like there's some background noise. Are you in a... Um, air conditioning vent or something? Yeah, it's this uh, stupid air conditioner. So what I think I can do is I can move. I'm in a large conference room, so I think that I can move away. Yeah, yeah. I think is this any better? I think that is helping. I'll tell you what, I will move as far away as I possibly can from that. I'm in the corner where I spent a lot of yeah, my yeah. youth or I spent a lot of my youth oh, no. in school. Oh my god, I was just talking about my youth. Uh, so you were in tr- you were a troublemaker? All the time. I ate lunch every day for the entire seventh grade in the principal's office with the principal. Oh my God. Yeah, well, were you, horrible. were you friends or what were you doing? We became what did friends. you do? Oh, bad decision-making, you know, trying to be funny, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to make people laugh. Always, always a mistake. I was always just disruptive. I was the, the 2% that the teacher spent 95% of his or her time with. Um, and it all changed in eighth grade when my algebra teacher, Mr. Rivera, who was a Marine, um, he solved me of that problem. Wait, is this <laughs> why you went into the military? <laughs> um, actually, it's one of the reasons. I mean, my, my grandfather had fought in World War I. My father served, my brother served 28 years. So it was kind of uh, you know, something I viewed as a positive experience. But yeah, no, this guy also, I said, uh, he's pretty smart. He seems to know how to behave himself. Maybe, if, <laughs> maybe be, like, I, be more like Mr. Rivera. Be more like Mr. Rivera. That's what I. Um, that's what I said. This is a great segue because I was just talking about my childhood, where I also ate alone, but not because I was in trouble, but because I was a big nerd. And I was saying that ninety um, percent is like an A minus, and I don't know if that's good enough. Um, <laughs> Could we just lay the basic facts here? Your hospital is one of many sites for the clinical trial of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Right. So Pfizer and BioNTech have partnered to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. There is a phase three trial going on globally, about 140, 150 sites uh, around the globe. And SUNY Upstate in Syracuse, where I work, is one of those sites. We've been enrolling volunteers uh, since July. So there are 150, 140, 150 sites doing this, but you are the lead principal investigator for this global trial. You're the principal now. Full circle. Uh, (laughs) That's right. Um, No, so, you know, each of those 140 sites or so, um, they will each have a principal investigator. So somebody, uh, the clinician who takes responsibility for the conduct of the trial at that site. And then uh, it's not unusual for these global programs for a company to uh, the sponsor to select someone that is outside of the company to assist them in the sort of... uh, compilation and um, review of data prior to submission to the regulatory authorities. Can I ask you about that relationship? Just as a layperson, I don't know how these work, but as a journalist, I uh, like if I'm trying to figure out whether, you know, a press release from a company 
holds up and what the remaining questions are, I would call someone like you to be sort of an outside voice to evaluate, you know, how to interpret the Presley release. Are you independent of them or are you now sort of like working for them? No, I'm, I'm independent, which is one of the reasons that uh, companies will select somebody uh, like myself who is independent so that, you know, an objective a set of eyes can look at the information. And again, this is kind of routine practice. Got it. I completely appreciate your perspective on this. And it's, it's wonderful that you found yourself in this position to help us understand what to make of this news, which sounds very good, the 90% number. Is there a way to say, I guess, how big of a deal people should make of that at this point? I personally think it's a huge deal. And I think that it should provide people a great deal of measured and cautious optimism that we can, you know, we can make a safe and efficacious COVID vaccine. You know, it is the first step among multiple steps that, you know, we need to go through to get to the finish line. But if this step didn't work, then that would have been tragic. And, and that, but that didn't happen. And in fact, I think, you know, if you talk to a lot of vaccine developers and immunologists and clinicians, uh, I think many of them would say that, you know, more than 90% exceeds expectations. Can I clarify what that means? You've had about 44,000 people who have enrolled in this study. Half of them got a placebo injected into them and have a, half got this test vaccine. They don't know what they got. Their doctors don't know what they got. It's double-blinded. And then people have been tested subsequently for the virus and only 94 of those 44,000 people tested positive. Right. So you enroll people uh, in all these different locations around the world who are at risk for infection with SARS-CoV-2 and developing COVID disease, and you randomly assign half of them to the vaccine and randomly assign half of them to placebo, and then you follow them and you keep in close contact with them and they fill out symptom diary cards. And, and when somebody alerts you to the fact that they may have a symptom which is consistent with COVID, then we investigate that symptom. But in the end, they ended up having 94 cases. And then a group, an external group who is unblinded can then look at, well, where do those cases fall? Do they fall in the vaccine group or do they fall in the group of people who received placebo? Mm -hmm. And they, they count them up and they do some math. And, and uh, again, fortunately, in this case, uh, there was great benefit from vaccination. So is 90% the percentage of people who got it who were not vaccinated? Or how do you get that number? Yeah, so um, there's a difference between efficacy and effectiveness. So efficacy is a number, and in this case, you know, greater than 90%. It, it represents the reduction uh, the percent reduction of disease in the people who received the vaccine compared to those people who received placebo. Got it. So it's the percent reduction of, of, of disease. So that's efficacy. And efficacy is a term that applies to controlled environments like a clinical trial, right? Where things are highly controlled. Effectiveness is actually efficacy and how it translates into the real world you know, the practicalities of everyday life outside of a clinical trial. It's more of uh, almost an individual level, whereas effectiveness is almost more at a, at a sort of a population level. So they reported 
they reported efficacy, right? Which is the, the data within the context of, of the clinical, uh, clinical trial. So when I'm reading this number 90% as a layperson who hopes to get the vaccine someday, do I think, oh, this means that if I get it, I'm 90, there's only a 10% chance I'll get COVID? Or does it not translate that way? No, that's pretty close. What it means is that if you were to get the vaccine, your risk of getting COVID was reduced by 90%. Okay. Which for context, I mean, the 2019-2020 influenza vaccine, the efficacy was 45%. So this is more than double that. And we know that flu vaccines have a great deal of, of benefit in terms of morbidity and mortality in the United States every year. So again, this is this is good news. Yeah. And Dr. Fauci had mentioned before, floated at least the possibility months ago of a vaccine being 50% or 60% effective at the beginning. Were you surprised to see a number this high? Yes, <laughs> I was. I was very pleasantly surprised when I, uh, you know, and I, I found out the way everyone else did, I, you know, with, through, the, through the press release. So Wait, really? You didn't know? I did not. <laughs> this is highly, this is, I mean, <laughs> this went from... This went from the data safety monitoring board uh, directly to, you know, through the process at, uh, at Pfizer. And so, yeah, it's a highly controlled, <laughs> it's a highly controlled process. Well, that leads me to the question about the process. I mean, why release this number before the study is done? I, I mean, be- before there's, there's data that everyone can see and share. Well, I don't think that this is an unusual process. Lots of big, huge phase three trials like this will have interim analyses planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you select, well, what are the objectives of this vaccine? What are the types of things that we want to look at? What are the time frames in which we want to look at them? And you, you plan all this uh, and you, code to the, you go to the regulatory agencies and uh, you know, the US FDA and you go to them with the plan and you get their concurrence on the plan. So this is all prospectively designed standard. Uh, to do things. Yeah, it's it's a standard, especially when you get into um, phase three trials with tens of thousands of people that are going to cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to execute. It is planned because you need to have sort of milestones to ensure that the safety profile is holding up to ensure that you know that showing benefit is is not going to be uh, futile. Like you you know, you know it's just not going to happen. And you also want to be able to. In some cases, there is such a discrepancy between the treatment group and the placebo group that you need to know that because you may want to stop the trial and and, uh, and declare that uh, the data is clear and, and there's benefit. You know. But the other thing that I would mention is this is a two year experiment. And there's a reason that it's two years is because there's lots of really important questions that are going to need time to answer. My personal opinion, again, I'm not, I don't speak for the company, but I personally think it is important that this data be known and not held until the end of a two-year period. Yeah. Well, that's actually, the time frame is something it's important to clarify. People got this vaccine or didn't get the vaccine. They either got vaccine or placebo in July. Well, we, you know, it's a rolling enrollment. So yes, we started and a lot of other groups started in July, but again, enrollment continues today. So gotcha. this analysis did not include the entire 43,000 uh, plus people. This analysis included 
you know, the first 30,000 or so people. And it's only saying at best that this was 90% effective for five months. In terms of concerns about immunity waning, we can't say anything about that yet. No, we can't. And that's why the experiment was designed to be two years in duration. Okay. So what, I mean, if this vaccine is 90% effective, that sounds pretty good. Can, can I have it now? Can everybody get it now? No. So there's still multiple steps and a lot of process that has to occur. So Pfizer reported the efficacy data. They made statements that there were no concerning safety signals, but the FDA need to see the data and they will do a very deep dive into the data. So what's going to happen in the next uh, you know, coming uh, days and weeks is Pfizer is going to compile all this information. They're going to compile their efficacy data. They're going to compile their safety data, their manufacturing process information, and they're going to put it all together in a package. And then they're going to send it over to the FDA. And then the FDA is going to look at all the data. They're going to ask questions. They're going to deliberate. And then they'll ultimately make a decision whether or not uh, to issue a, an emergency use authorization. And then at that point in time, you know, that will uh, allow a, a distribution of the vaccine outside of the context of a clinical trial. But there still is a huge logistical lift that must occur for millions and millions of doses to be distributed. And then there's also the important aspect that people have to be willing to take it, right? Because right. Uh, yeah, vaccines don't save lives. It's vaccination, which saves lives. And for vaccination to occur, you need a willing recipient on the other side. And as we know, we've been a little challenged in that area uh, in the United States. So, so there's still a lot of uh, important work that, uh, you know, that needs to be done. But again, the first step is a positive one. Can I ask you about those two buckets of potential obstacles, starting with the logistical ones? What are the main logistical obstacles? What makes this hard to make and distribute? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the scale and the kinetics of uh, distribution that are required in the midst of a pandemic, I think, uh, uh, you know, that's a challenge in and of itself. Just yeah, like we can barely keep people in toilet paper. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, so that's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, this particular vaccine currently has a requirement to be stored at a very cold temperature. Like I can keep it in my freezer or? No, no, no. it would, it, it's a, a very specific types of freezers that go to very, very cold temperatures. And it's really not the standard temperature at which uh, vaccines are typically stored. So what that means is that they they have to come up with ways to, in bulk, right, and at, at the millions of doses uh, level, they have to figure out how are they going to keep it cold? How are they going to keep it cold during shipping? How is it going to be kept cold when it's stored at places that are going to be administering the vaccine? And how are they going to set up distribution? So it's there it's, is some guy running a freezer company who's about to make millions of dollars. Is there are numerous warehouses that are just freezer farms, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And is this vaccine a one dose or a two dose? It's a two dose vaccine separated uh, three weeks apart between dose one and dose two. So that makes it a lot harder too, huh? Well, you're right. It is an added, it is ad an added complexity. But again, none of these uh, complexities or challenges are insurmountable. I mean, we've done it before. There are lots of vaccines out there that are multi-dose and we have figured out how to do it and, and 
you know, there's a lot of really smart, experienced people who are going to figure out how to do it with this vaccine. Totally. I'm just asking why, because when people hear, I think when people hear, oh, 90% effective, we have a vaccine. And then we say, oh, it's not going to be widely available until, you know, months from now. It's hard to understand why. Um, Right. It is a process. But again, (laughs) it's very good news. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Does this change anything about the timeline? Like, is this speeding things up? Or are we on the track we've all been hearing about, which is like by the end of the year, approval, widespread availability, not till maybe late spring or summer next year? I mean, I've always been on that timeline and I remain on that exact timeline. I, you know, I believe that this positive news keeps this vaccine on the pathway that has been set for it. I don't see widespread rollout of vaccines throughout the country to have those first tier recipients. I, I, I just don't see that happening um, before the first quarter of 21 or into the second quarter of uh, uh, 21. Okay. So great news doesn't change anything. Well, it's great news because it keeps us on the pathway to yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, having another potential very powerful tool in flattening the curve. Totally. So can I ask you one more logistical question? You mentioned uh, vaccine, you know, people have to be willing to take it. We had vaccine skepticism long before COVID, but I do think the sort of accelerated timeline and the term, terms like warp speed have made even people who trust vaccines have questions about, like, how do we really know? And I'm curious, is there, are there things that we don't know yet? Like, you know, we we hear headlines every now and then, oh, there was an adverse reaction, you know? Mm-hmm. And it sounds scary. Is there, is this the kind of thing that we could find out years from now? Oh, all of the people who took this vaccine had X weird thing happen that we didn't detect at the time. Like, how concerned right. should I be about adverse reactions and how much we don't know yet? Right. So with any medication over the counter or prescription with any vaccine, there is always the risk benefit. Nothing is 100% effective and nothing is 100% without risk. But with the process of developing vaccines and drugs, a lot of those risks can be identified early on. And a lot of the risks, if they are determined to be unacceptable, those products will then be halted. Their development will be halted. I do know that people are concerned about the speed of this development, but I do think that there are some things that people may or may not realize, which has contributed to the speed. So the the first thing is that vaccines typically take a long time to develop because it's very, very expensive to develop a vaccine. It it costs easily over a billion US dollars. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the historical benchmark. And so companies, when they're developing vaccines, they take a very pragmatic, very sequential approach to things because they're trying to mitigate financial risk. What has happened with COVID is that in the case of Pfizer, uh, they've underwritten their own financial risk. In the case of Operation Warp Speed, the US taxpayer has underwritten the financial risk. So processes that typically occur sequentially can now occur in parallel. And that can really shave off a lot of time. And that's an acceptable risk, especially you know, in the face of a pandemic, because it is not a safety risk, right? It's not a safety risk to manufacture hundreds of millions of doses of a vaccine, because if the vaccine proves that it's not safe or not effective, those doses will never see the light of day. If those vaccine is demonstrated to be safe and effective, 
then the doses will be ready and we won't have to wait for the year or two years for all those doses to be manufactured. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that a lot of these vaccines that are in advanced development right now, this is not the first time that those platforms, so messenger RNA or adenovirus vectored or chimp adenovirus vectored, all these different types of platforms, this is not the first time that they've been in humans. These are vaccine platforms that have been used try and develop other types of vaccines, whether it be Ebola, influenza, or Zika, or, you know, other types of vaccines. So hundreds and thousands of other people have already received these types of vaccines before. So so folks weren't really starting from zero. Um, And the third is that, you know, in the past, the FDA review timelines could be substantial. It could be, you know, for many years, it was you know, up to two years from the time that a sponsor would submit a packet for consideration before they would get an answer. But now that timeline is uh, on average um, 10 months or less. And in the context of a pandemic, and we saw this with Ebola and we saw this with Zika, um, the regulatory agencies are in very, very close contact with the sponsors mm-hmm. and the company and their, their reviews are occurring at a very quick pace. So I know that it's fast, but at least from my perspective, I have not seen any safety risks. I have not seen any corners that have been cut in the process. I have not seen any sponsor using, you know, not using these objective outside uh, oversight, you know, groups, et cetera. So, um, so I understand the concern, but uh, I think people should have confidence that if the FDA signs off on the vaccine is safe and effective, then, uh, you know, they should, they should have some confidence that there's the data to support that. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, Okay, so the big picture of this is that 90% effectiveness might not matter in terms of changing the timeline to distribution to when you can get a vaccine, but it could make a big difference to when the pandemic ends, if I understand that right. If you have a 50% effective vaccine versus 90%, you know, you can more quickly whittle things down and maybe even people would be more likely to take the vaccine if that, you know, that changes their own risk benefit calculation. Um, so it seems to me this is really significant news in terms of the timeline to return to quote unquote normal life. I think you are right because we do know that people, you know, there's a significant proportion of folks who do not get the influenza vaccine. Um, the rationale behind that is, well, it's a flip of a coin, it's 45 or 50%, I'll, I'll take, you know, I'll take my chances. So I do think that the 90% efficacy, if that performance uh, holds, then I think that that will do a lot to allay some fears of, uh, of folks or motivate folks to get vaccinated. I also think that you're correct in that, you know, if we have a vaccine, which is 90% efficacious, and we distribute that widely, and the uptake is great, and we vaccinate in addition to increasing the consistency of our uh, application of public health interventions like masking and social distancing, I believe that we could make very drastic strides in uh, flattening, you know, the nation's curve. Absolutely. Got it. So that's good news. That is very good news. I think so. Because think of the converse. If we were having the discussion of this thing didn't work, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Then, then the time, you know, the timelines then would have shifted considerably, right? We would, right. we would all be in a much different uh, frame of mind. But the fact that not only 
did it meet expectations, but it exceeded expectations. I think it introduces a lot of light into what has been a very uh, otherwise uh, dark landscape over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say this is a it's an interesting moment for this news to come out. It's so great. And we've also hit this really scary accelerating period. I'm just curious, how are you? Um, th this has absolutely been a shot in the arm, uh, no pun intended, in a good way, because I, you know, I just came off of a week in the hospital and we have three times the number of COVID patients that we had over the summer. And, you know, we have more people on ventilators than we had in the summer. We have the numbers of infections. We're one of those micro clusters in New York state. So there's a lot of very um, disappointing news for sure. Uh, so, you know, to have this news come out and to know that um, me and as part of a team contributed information to that 90%, um, it's good. It was good for the, good for the mental health of the team. And, and, and it's, you know, it's good for our university and, and hopefully it's good for <laughs> all the people who have heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Some hope, right? Some optimism. It's reassuring to me that you are in the uh, position of kind of vetting and helping uh, make sure this data is sound. I, I feel more confident in this news, knowing that you're going to be looking over people's shoulders going forward. Thanks. <laughs> That's Moses. <laughs> I, That's Moses saying. <laughs> I know Moses. I, I've seen pictures of, of Moses. Oh, have you heard about Betty? No, I have not. Oh my God. Dr. Thomas, I got a dog in order to compete with Jim. Oh, good for you. What kind? A TBD, but maybe Great Pyrenees in lab. She's a rescue oh, dog, okay. so she's um, kind of TBD. That's excellent. Did you ever solve the uh, hand sanitizer issue that you had the last time we spoke? You know, I was just thinking about you recently because those two big bladders of Purell yes. that, I, that you helped me figure out how to open in March or April mm -hmm. or whenever it was, I'm still on them. I'm still wow. using them. They're huge. That's, that's fantastic. They've lasted me this whole time. So that's you've, great. <laughs> you've, in addition to, you know, saving the world through, you know, leading this uh, yeah. <laughs> vaccine research, you've in particular helped me access my uh, hand sanitizer. So thank you for that. That is, that is tremendous. I, <laughs> I, will, I will sleep very well tonight knowing <laughs> that, that somewhere <laughs> there's someone with very clean there's hands. Someone rubbing... <laughs> Pumping Purell all over their hands and breathing a sigh of relief. Well, thank you. And and you. I guess congrats is a weird word to say. That's not the right word. But um, I guess thank you. Yeah, thank you for thank your work you. on this. And thank you for talking to us. And thank you for your work. Have a nice day. Thanks, you too. All right, Thanks, we'll, we'll talk to you hopefully before too long. Okay, I'd like that. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye. Bye. When I heard this 90% news, even though I didn't know what it meant. Um, I felt like this weird, he called it a ray of light. And I actually did feel this weird thing. I was like, oh, someday this will end. Mm -hmm. This will end. And it just had been a long time that I felt that in my bones. So I know it's still a long way off, but it's awesome that this could end. Yeah. That's so good. I mean, it's the way we say that amid it, amidst it getting worse right now. So I don't want to be falsely optimistic or let down my guard, but just the idea that this will end, that there is a process happening is wonderful. Right.
So great. To me, that's that's what makes it possible to change our lives temporarily, right, is knowing that this is going to end. And when people are asked to do things like like not travel for the holidays or something, right, knowing that by all likelihoods we'll be able to travel next year, that this is a one-time deal, that we're not saying forever you can never right. – Right. Do normal things again. That actually makes it, you know, a lot more cognitively manageable. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the holidays, we should talk about the holidays next week, maybe. I, yeah. We've gotten a lot of questions from people about how to handle it. And um, maybe we can get into a little more detail beyond just saying, you know, <laughs> probably don't do it. But let's get into some more detail next week. Yeah. That would be helpful. It's easy to say, just simply don't do it. But I, it would be more helpful to expand on the complexities of situations where things might be possible yeah. or not. So maybe next week we take a couple of scenarios and we we can run through the relative risks and rewards of each um, holiday or travel scenario. Um, if you, we have some already, but if you have specific questions about holiday travel or plans, you can write us at socialdistance@theatlantic.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 202-642-6487. This show, as always, uh, is produced by Kevin Townsend. And I always ask people to subscribe, but maybe this week I'll ask, if you haven't reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, please do. In fact, if you want to add your holiday question as a review, just... Just review the podcast, say five stars, and then put your question there and we'll find it. That's an interesting (laughs) approach. Um, Yeah. Just a suggestion. I like it. Do whatever you want. All right. uh, Talk to you next week, James. Oh. (laughs) Bye. Bye, James. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.